If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. There is, of course, a huge pleasure in introducing <coughs> a new book uh, by Jeff Darwin. In fact, I can trace my own relationship to actually sitting in this very chair back to an engagement with Jeff's work. It was my first professional piece of writing. This might sound like a long story, but actually it does re- sort of relate directly to what we're going to talk about. Um, my first professional piece of writing was actually a, a profile for The Independent. Of course, it is our you, we'll all recall, um, they used to ask us uh, when we bought it, when we still could buy it in, in print form, um, a profile of Jeff around the... Uh, publication of his book, Paris Trance. I, I remember it as a profile, but I also think it was an interview. I can't quite remember whether I actually met Jeff, um, or whether I just talked to him on the phone, or whether I never talked to him at all. I just read the book, and, and, or didn't read the book, and wrote up something about him. Um, but in a way, what was so strong about that encounter, um, whether in person or not, was that um, I, I, I heard the voice of Jeff Dyer, his signature voice, one that we could call diarrest, perhaps, or, or diarrhean. We might come back to that in a wholly different context later. Um, but what is important is that across numerous subject areas, numerous forms of inquiry, it's that voice, that unique voice that we all know and love, um, that, of course, uh, carries us through these incredible encounters with experiences from the outside world, which I discovered, of course, reading further into this book, is a phrase from D.H. Lawrence, one of your key uh, dialogue um, uh, encounters, shall we say, Jeff, over, over many years, of course, from out of sheer age onwards and, and running throughout many, many books and certainly your sense of what writing can do in the world. So these are essays that have appeared in very different forms um, elsewhere. They're gathered in a beautifully structured way we'll come on to later. But what prompted you to gather these at this particular point? I mean, there are obvious signposts that I'll talk about if you don't later on. But when did this, when did this find its form, its shape for you? Geez, you're on such a roll, Gareth. I feel I'm, I feel I shouldn't interrupt. It's a, it's a great. It's, it's a, all on the surface. It's a, it's a great, a great solo that you've started off with. Uh, yeah, well, it's always best if these things are, are kind of have a, a slightly adversarial edge. So, I, and I'm right from the start. I want to object to this description of it as a book of essays. No, fantastic. You must do. Because yeah. um, um, I mean, it's true that uh, you know, part. You know, there's a note, of course, in the back saying parts of this book have previously appeared, brackets, often in very different form. But I really just don't think of them as, as essays, really. I mean, I certainly don't think of them as travel essays uh, because of the sort of tautology involved in that. You know, <coughs> that, you know uh, the essay is always a form of, of, of some kind of travel. And, you know, every time somebody... I mean, uh, and there's nothing wrong with a random collection of essays. I've certainly done I've done a couple of those. But yeah, I feel, feel this is just a book in its own right. Um, and for every one that is sort of essayistic, there's, a, there's another that is, you know, there are at least two of them which were published, first of all, as, as fiction, as stories. Mm-hmm. 
But um, yeah, I feel they're neither. They're neither. They don't work entirely as stories are meant to. Nor do they work as essays. But the, to, to finally get round to the you know the the actual question about how it how it sort of came together. I saw that there were a number of these things that I that I'd written. And there were another, was about 40, 45,000 words. And I saw that, um, oh, yeah, you know, I've got enough for sort of yoga volume two, you know, the, the previous kind of uh, travel book. Uh, and then I thought about maybe other, you know, other pieces I could add. And then when I went, you know, I thought, oh, I'll visit the Watts Towers and I'll visit uh, the Adorno House. And then I went along to these places. And, yeah, there was certainly something I could write about. And I found that the... What I was writing about them was consistent with some of the themes and preoccupations that were were there in the in the other bits and bobs, and that with very little effort on my part, uh, a completely coherent book could could emerge. Um, really, yeah, as opposed to as opposed to the book just being a cont- a container into which you just you know you just pour the the random uh, productions of the last however many many years. Absolutely, but it's it's anything but that. Do you want to give us a flavour of? Uh, yeah, what I what I'd like to. Start with? Yeah, I mean, sure. Let's start with well, since I mentioned the uh, um, Adorno piece, so I shouldn't have shouldn't have even said it was Adorno. I should have just said it's about a visit to three one six South Kenter Avenue, and everybody here would have known immediately that ah, that's Adorno's house. Um, so let's just uh, yeah, I think this bit will work quite well. We parked the car a few houses along from 316. The sun was strong and the street deserted. That's a quotation, by the way. Uh, The sun was strong and the street deserted. We'll come on to where it's from. The lawns of South Kenter blazed with a brightness that seemed far in excess of their square footage, unless the blazingness was a direct result of the colour being contained and thereby concentrated. Probably the time was not far off when grass could be genetically modified so that as well as being the greenest and weed-freest grass ever seen, it would also stop growing after an inch and a half so you wouldn't have to mow it. This would be hailed as a breakthrough because time that had been wasted on mowing could now be used for other things. But this extra time would turn out to be strangely worthless and people wouldn't do much with it except the things from which mowing the lawn had provided relief downloading music and watching episodes of High Maintenance or videos that had gone viral on YouTube. And so, after a brief honeymoon, people would go back to old-style grass growing and take out their mowers again. And although mowing the lawn would once again become a bit of a chore, people would realise that they preferred this chore to the alternative and and that this constituted a limited form of enlightenment. Packaged in a different tense... All those woods would have to go. This was an idea I could have pitched to the Hollywood agent whose amazing house we dined at a few weeks previously, just a few miles from here. But already, in the time that I'd spent pitching it to myself, it seemed to have achieved the only form in which it would ever generate any interest, unless I reconceived it as a commercial for lawnmowers, which I realised almost as quickly is exactly what it had been all along. It's a, it's a little parable, that, in fact. Well, on the back of the, uh, the wonderful new Canongate edition, there's also a, a, a wonderful little parable that actually goes back to the first story. Oh, yeah. That we know in our culture, almost. 
Um, back to the Garden of Eden. Oh, I could read that one as well. I think that'd actually. be great. Yeah, yeah okay. because that sets us up very well. I think between the two. You should have said Gareth, and I'd have read well, that no, one I mean, instead of the instead, instead of the one I did read. Man, you should always always run. Yeah. With so this is just another, after this, I promise you there won't be any more reading or not much because it's, it's much more fun when I, Gareth and I are speaking. Uh, this is where I'm in uh, the, the little island where Gauguin ended up called Eva Oa. Um, other, other people thought Eva Oa was paradise, but if this was the case, then it was a paradise from which I was becoming impatient to be expelled. With this in mind, it seemed certain that the apple in Eden grew on the tree of knowledge of elsewhere. Up until that point, Adam and Eve were happy where they were. Then they ate, then they ate the apple, and it was slightly disappointing to them. And they started to wonder if maybe there were other kinds of apples elsewhere, if there were crunchier and crisper and sweeter apples to be had from somewhere else. They began to think that there might be a funner place where the food was better, they even began to suspect that paradise itself might be somewhere else. And not only that, they began to think that there might be some commercial potential in this knowledge, that it might be possible to make a living importing and exporting these apples and marketing paradise as a destination. From there, to keep the history of the world as brief as possible, it's only a small step to package cruises and supermarkets stocking full spectrum of exotic fruits. I mean, that's really tremendous. And in, in, in that, in a way, is, uh, is, is the seed of the whole book, the whole uh, collection, in a way. This constant tension that you experience between the desire to be elsewhere, your arrival there on whatever time frame and for however long or short a period, and then the increasing frustration with the location because of its failure or, or its inadequacy in relation to the hope um, uh, imposed or impressed within your journey towards it. It can work the other way around as well, though, that there's a, um, a, a sort of um, serial disappointments and frustrations that then give way to a, a sense of um, uh, being absolutely where I, where I want to be. So that, for example, the piece about the lightning field, we arrive there um, and it's it's a colossal disappointment because this absolutely, you know, much hyped, uh, you know, piece of land art, you arrive because of the time of day you arrive when the sun is directly overhead, there's literally nothing to see. I mean, maybe there's a few little, what look like little sticks in the, the field. And then gradually, you know, as this experience unfolds over time, you know, you begin to realize, oh, my God, this is a, a quasi, this is a sort of secular version of a religious experience that we're having. So I really, um, yeah, I, I'm all, I mean, I, it's not, it, there's only one uh, section of the book where uh, the world completely fails to deliver. And in that piece, the only kind of redemption comes in the, the you know the the kind of writing it up as comedy afterwards, but uh, yeah, the the world does. I mean, t to give it credit, it it, <laughs> it continues to to deliver. No, I mean when I mentioned the the uh, the opening idea of anticipation, disappointment, and wonder, of course, that is actually the twist in in the tale yeah. in the book for the, for for the reader and for you. Um, you do encounter places you never want to leave. Lightning Field's a great example. You have a wonderful encounter there. Or you have a slant encounter, shall we say, with a place where you're surprised by the, the, the location just off the target, shall we say. Yeah. And, and that you know, becomes a, a kind of growing um, 
pleasure through the book. But but it all starts in childhood, doesn't it? You start it with this... It starts where? In childhood with, yeah. with oh, yeah. Cheltenham. And you mm. have this series of short pieces between the longer longer writing where you, you, you talk through some of the key locations of your earliest years in a way that I don't think you have quite in previous books. And also they provide a kind of anchor to, towards the end of the book, which we'll come on to later. Just tell us a little bit about, about oh, setting yeah. that childhood landscape up and what it means. Yeah, it seems to quite a lot of the stuff in this book and in the yoga book as well, it deals with these kind of places. Some of them are kind of sacred sites, you know, Angkor Wat, that kind of stuff in, in the yoga book. And, you know, these are places where there's uh, some kind of special power or, you know, there's a power emanating from these, place, from these places and there's a kind of power converging on them. And, you know, in the case of Angkor Wat, say, or the lightning field or the spiral jetty, of course there's that power because, you know, they've been designed for that. But as I, you know, I was thinking about where, where did my receptivity to these places start? And somewhat in the style of Raymond Williams, the country and the city, you know, I, whenever I thought I'd located the origins of it, it turned out that there was a, um, a kind of, um, uh, a pre-echo of that earlier and earlier on in my in my childhood, so that you know, like many people from Britain, I have a great fondness for the American Southwest. You know, and I thought, oh, that's because of you know westerns or whatever. And then I remembered that my, uh, you know, I, I had this. My mum had three sisters, one of whom was incredibly beautiful, and. They were gro- they, there. They were in this farm in rural Shropshire, and my aunt was my mum's sister was poised to go into service, uh, and she came to the attention of this pupil at Shrewsbury Public School, and then this kind of version of a Thomas Hardy novel unfolded, where he you know he liked the look of my, my auntie Hilda, who's still alive by the way, ninety two now, and he whisked her off from the from the life she was meant to lead. She then uh, uh, moved to London with him. Uh, and in sort of London, the 1960s, she made this, she, she met this self-made millionaire who took her off on a cruise on the, you know, uh, and they went to, they did a sort of tour of the, you know, the American national parks. And she sent to me these brochures for the painted desert and all this kind of stuff. And that was my first realization that these wondrous mythic landscapes like Monument Valley, which of course I'd seen on the, the telly, really existed. You could go to them. So that was important. And then I realized that, oh, my God, you know, there's this place just outside of Cheltenham called the Devil's Chimney. You know, there's a, you know, the, the name gives you a clue that you're in, you know, this is a, a mythic place. Quite a, quite a humble, it's not a world heritage site, quite, quite rightly, but, you know, quite an unusual place, which my Uncle Daryl had climbed, you know. So that was, you know, that that was, I thought maybe that was my first sense of these special places. But then it, I realized, no, it was actually the right next to the my junior school, there was this place called the Hump. You know, a very nothing if not literal. And it was just this hump of ground with trees on it. And it's where we all used to converge and play these games. And it had some sort of special significance for it. So it's, it occurs to me that wherever you are, even though it seems to me that my childhood couldn't have unfolded in a, in a much more ordinary, less mythic place. You know, there it, there it was, this place, the hump. And then, just to sort of link it in further, you know, the couple of books ago I wrote about the Tarkovsky film, The uh, Stalker, 
And there I was kind of mulling over, you know, why is it this film has had such a, such a hold on me? And I thought, well, that, that trip that they take into the zone on that railway line. And I realized that, you know, at that time, before whatever his name is, it Beeching that closed down all the, the, the branch lines, Cheltenham, my hometown, had about five stations in it. And then they were closed down. So these sort of abandoned railway lines really ran through my childhood. And they were, of course, you know, uh, they were places where you could go and play as a kid, and they were, you know, they were kind of these little zones, really. Yeah. So, to give a really long answer to your question, what I've always been in, I realised that the the origins of my interest with the zone of being this, you know, a special place, go really, you know, I can I can trace it back at least to the the hump which I started. Uh, it is such a crap name, isn't it? Um, which I I started visiting when I was I don't know. Six, something like that, seven. I mean, The Stalker, of course, is, you know, can now be seen as such a crucial work for you because of what you've said. And, of course, the idea that you are heading in the film, the characters are heading towards this room where their wishes will be granted, of course, through yeah. a landscape filled with forms of threat and challenge. But, of course, when they get there, the room becomes something very different. Yeah. And that was obviously an encounter much later. But this idea of, of the childhood promise of elsewhere, which, of course, we all have as we grow up, um, manifests, of course, in your journey across the course of the book towards the American West Coast, yeah. which you arrive at without, you know, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> uh, towards the end of the book. And then, of course, as you say, have sourced several locations for the book from there. That's a place where you, you arrive and you borrow Lawrence's... Um, description of his own encounter with New Mexico as somewhere that could be an arrival, which yeah. suggests that when you get there, the kind of job is almost done in a way. But of course it's not, because it becomes a springboard for a new sense of journey. Yeah, that's right. But again, I, I, I sort of take issue with that in a way, Gareth, this idea of the, the importance of somewhere else. But also I'm really struck by just how in the, the, place, you, the place you are, you know, where you're rooted has its own kind of resonance. Mm. So I think of two things. Uh, one of, you know, Lawrence in one of those essays, I can't remember which, oh, it's Nottingham and, Nottingham and the Mining Country, when he talks about the way that there was, he had a real sense that, you know, uh, he's in Nottinghamshire, and he says that, you know, Robin Hood and his merry men were there as sort of present, as a presence in the, la in the landscape. And then recently, I mean, it's something that you might, I, I came across these amazing photographs by Peter Mitchell, one of the, you know, great, now quite old British photographers. And they were photographs of scarecrows. Um, and I wished I'd come across them before, um, before I'd finished the book. Cause these are, we all know what, I mean, I just hadn't realized until I saw these photographs. Wow. These scarecrows were really an important part of my childhood. And he says, you know, somebody asks Peter Mitchell, what are these scarecrows to you? And he says, well, they're, they're, to me, they're essentially Yorkshire. To me, they're essentially Gloucestershire. And I'm sure, you know, whichever counties you've got, whichever countries you come from. And, you know, I realized that they, they seem to have some, they were like signposts from the, the you know, okay, they're there functionally to, to scare off birds. But, you know, you only have to look at them. If you, if you were visiting from Mars, you would quickly say, ah, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know what the Mars accent is like. Let's, let's do it as a sort of uh, pan-European. You'd say, ah, yes, this is clearly, these are the tributes to the, to the gods, you know, wouldn't you? I mean, so, yeah, all that stuff that I later became interested in elsewhere was there uh, on my home turf. Yeah. Um, and 
to put it somewhat dialectically, I only became interested in, only had this desire to go elsewhere precisely because my impulse was to was to stay put because my parents certainly didn't like traveling and you know I didn't get on a plane till I was 22 or 23 you know um, but I knew from reading Lawrence and other people that it was good for you to travel so reluctantly I did it and had a really shit time doing it until I was about 29 I think when I finally started to, to enjoy elsewhere I was much more Larkin-esque, I think, by, by much more Larkin-esque than Laurentian by 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 disposition. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the earlier books, I mean, books like *The Color of Memory*, where you, you know you actually hit absolutely him a very particular location, and you're you know you're uh, more than happy to to excavate it. You know that this very small locality, right, part of a city, Brixton, yeah. and so on, um, to celebrate its its kind of placeness. This idea of how you, you know, how you construct what Lawrence, you know, and you quote him, calls nodality. Oh yeah. These forms of belonging through, you know, real or, or collective or private ritual is very strong mm. in the book. And of course, you know, you range across sites, as you suggested, that you know, go from the very publicly and the collectively acknowledged to, to to the aesthetic and then to the more private. And this is, in a way, is, is interesting how that's represented in the books themselves, because this is the Canongate one, of course, many, many here, a nice kind of sort of staircase of books that we can sort of place ourselves on if the seating runs out. And then that's, there's a sort of conceptual space here, a mm. landscape um, of, of, of mapping, shall we say, as compared to this one, if I may, which is yeah. White Sands, the American edition, and then the uh, Australian edition places you on the cover with Spiral Jetty. Yeah. And all of those taken together, if you like, in a, in a kind of crude summary, suggest that the strategies you have in relation to place. Oh yeah, but this is. But in terms of, I mean, I don't. I mean, God, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not saying that you should all go on Amazon.com and get the American edition instead, because that really would be counterproductive. <coughs> but this is quite a, an interesting photograph, if you can see it. I mean, because it's a picture of White Sands, and the thing about White Sands at the the national park as you drive into it is that, you know, you're on a road, first of all, uh, a road with all its, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of with its equivalence of narrative. And then what happens, as this picture demonstrates, the sand starts coming onto the road, and it becomes, you know harder to distinguish from the sand around it until eventually the road just dissolves completely into uh, the, the place. And I quite like the way that actually if you think of the road as some sort of you know symbol of straightforward narrativeness, then I like the way that what you're reading dissolves into, well, I, you don't know quite where you are in terms of a reading experience. Is it an essay? Is it a story? You know, oh, you're just in this undemarcated unsignposted kind of um, terrain, let's call it. So I like the idea that, in a way, the reader is is sort of um, asking, you know, oh, God, you know, I mean, where where am I in terms of uh, the reading experience? Because quite often when we're reading, you know, we like the way we know where we are and we can see all those sort of, uh, we're, you know, we're aware of the conventions that make reading a particular kind of book uh, enjoyable. But I like the idea of, oh, God, actually, I'm not quite sure where I am reading-wise, formally. Well, I mean, in the beginning of the book, of course, there's a, there's a kind of practical preface, shall we call it, where <laughs> you, you suggest 
that aspect of things um, in relation to the book and in relation to one particular naming that happens in the book. Yeah. Um, so I think, can we, can we carry that um, White Sands sort of motif forward? Is that the page on which you as a figure are kind of writing these stories? Is that the, the pivot piece in the book for you? It's the, absolutely the, the central piece, it seems to me, because I was going to call it, uh, you know, after the Gauguin painting, whatever it's called, where do we come from, where are we, what are we going? And, you know, there were loads of problems with that because it was so many words. Then, um, you know, there's the subtitle experiences from the outside world. Oh, my God, if I had a name like, I don't know, Sebastian Moncrief Farquharson, there would not have been room for my name on the, on, on the, on the cover. Anyway, so the, the shorter title seemed catchier. But also it just seemed so, so exemplary in a, in, in a way. I mean, partly because the, the story as some of you will know, you know, we, the story White Sands, we're driving along, we pick up a hitchhiker and it's all nice because it's always nice to pick up hitchhikers. Uh, and then we see this sign saying, you know, notice do not pick up hitchhikers, detention facilities in area, whereupon, you know, as, as I say in the book, the vibe changes. Um, and the thing about that is, you know, the sign is telling us what kind of person is likely to be hitchhiking. You know, it's likely to be a convict. Uh, an escaped convict. And at the same time, that all the signs that you get on a book, fiction, non-fiction, memoir, travel, whatever it is, those are signs telling you what the kind of, you know, what what to expect. So, uh, you know, I, I feel that the, uh, the way that, that that central piece is neither a story, it's, it's a story, but it's also an essay on those Taryn Simon photographs, The Innocents, it's certainly not behaving as a, as, a, as a short story is meant to be behaving because, I mean, the narrator says of the hitchhiker when he explains what he's doing here and he says he's been to jail and stuff, and the, the narrator says, geez, man, he wasn't a very good storyteller. He kept bringing in all this irrelevant detail, which, of course, I am doing as well. That you know, if, if you have in your head a particular template of how a short story should, uh, should, should perform... Exactly. I mean, talking of irrelevant detail, which of course is anything but once the, uh-huh. the book accumulates, it brings us onto this idea of music. And, and, you know, we think of your great book, But Beautiful, and, and music and books not written about music are also at the heart of one of the essays here. Yeah. Um, the idea, which obviously reviewers have picked up on in relation to this and, and previous works, is how you improvise and appear to be moving freely uh, between points and, and bringing, as you say, digression in, which actually, of course, becomes the point by the time we reach the conclusion. Is it useful to think about this book in a sort of musical sense? I mean, there's a, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a, I come back to those sort of jazz people that are important there. That's one of the things that gives it a kind of unity. So it works on a quite, got a really quite basic level at some point that, you know, when, uh, you know, when we go to somewhere, I can't remember where it is, we're listening to Pharaoh Sanders, Upper and Lower Egypt, and then the next little linking chapter is about Egypt. I mean, that's clever, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> so that's, I mean, uh, but actually it's more that, the, you know, there's other, there's that, the music forms an underlying sort of mesh because, I mean, it would be so tempting to geek out on this, but certain musical figures crop up throughout um, and provide a kind of, yeah, a kind of underlying um, uh, thing there. But then it, you know, it ends up with me Refle- reflecting on books that I've not been able to to write, and um, there's this. I talk about the way that I just like the idea of writing this 
I had this idea of writing a book called The Ballad of Jimmy Garrison, and, uh, you know, who, as, as many of you will know, is, you know, Coltrane's bassist. And it always seems so in- amazing to me that Elvin Jones leaves because he says all he can hear is a lot of noise. McCoy Tyner leaves for the same reason. And then Garrison just stays with Coltrane right to the end. That seems so interesting to me. And then I was never able to write that thing. And then right at the death, uh, the chapter on uh, Watts Towers, um, which was originally called Something Big, I thought, oh, yeah, geez, I'll, I'll, I'll change the, tit- the, chap- the title of that to The Ballad of Jimmy Garrison. Phew, so I sort of got it written uh, in a way. But, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of musical stuff going on. And Charles Mingus grew up in Watts. And, you know, uh, I first saw the Watts Towers on the album of Don Cherry's album, Brown Rice. And for those of you who've listened to the Book of the Week thing without any prompting from me, they rather brilliantly chose a, a track from uh, Brown Rice as the, the theme music. Fantastic. Well, going back to the, to the first uh, short reading that Jeff uh, gave us, of course, where he talks about um, the time wasted by mowing the lawn, of course, can be used for other things. If you have not heard those Book of the Week readings, you can, of course, save save the time that you would have spent reading them in the book and listen to them <laughs> while doing something else because that is the book of the week on Radio 4, which is, a, is a, again, a whole other shift that we perhaps could talk about later in how you're perceived here. Um, as Zadie Smith says, you are now a national treasure and that has significant implications, of course, which we can come on to um, <laughs> shortly. Um, perhaps we could hear a little bit more from the book, if you'd like um, to. Yeah, there was one little bit I thought would be fun to, to read. Again, it's just a real short bit. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean... This is, um, I don't know, I didn't listen to all of this. I I hope that this wasn't in uh, the, if you've been listening to the radio, it's, uh, okay, so this is uh, about our life. So we live in Venice Beach now in in LA, um, and uh, yeah, that's all you need to know. Before Before we started going on our driving pilgrimages, we would cycle along the bike path to Santa Monica. It's right by the ocean, the bike path. The bike path is clearly marked, but there are always lots of people walking, or not even walking, just dawdling and stopping in the middle of the path to take pictures. Even some of the cyclists have no more idea of how to ride a bike than if they'd rented a donkey for the afternoon. So although it's one of the nicest bike paths in the world, it's also slightly irritating, since you have to ring your bell constantly to avoid the herds of iPod zombies and THC drongos some of whom don't even register that the bell is intended as a warning, like the slim girl in unignorable denim cutoffs, who, smiling through a fog of narcotic bewilderment... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads... LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. 
Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Responded, what a pretty bell. <laughs> but since one of the attractions of California is the relative absence of aggression, it's not in anyone's interest to start yelling, get out of the fucking bike path, asshole even if that's the thought going round and round your head like a bicycle wheel. Um, God, it's quite, it's quite nice being in... You know, you come back to London, you know, with all the aggro, and it's, sometimes I kind of like, like it in California, knowing that I'm the most aggressive person for several miles around. It's a kind of... Uh, uh, it's a kind of, yeah. Well, in your, in your previous book, when you were um, out at sea on the USS... USS George Bush, you were the tallest and almost the oldest person on the boat, weren't you? And that obviously um, led to all sorts of um, uh, amusing and insightful encounters. So that, I guess, begs the question of, uh, um, in relation to travel, are you deliberately wanting to put yourself into a situation, a zone, as an exception? Oh, no, I just like, you know, just like many people, I've always liked, well, I've always liked being in America. I've always liked, and then once you get to America, California is always beckoning. Uh, but it's this um, thing, the way that one's destiny never quite, you know, for years I was saying, you know, oh, God, I just, I felt it was so my destiny to live in California. And I'd say to my wife, God, it's just, you know, my whole life's a failure because I'm not living in California. But I'd always envisaged living in Northern California. And I'd always hated Los Angeles when I'd visited it <coughs> for all, for sort of the reasons, it's such a difficult city, you know, and there's, you know, if it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, so I sort of feel, oh, yeah, I'm in California, but I'm not where I always thought I'd be, you know, and Los Angeles. But at the same time, it's one is conscious of there's such a tradition of British writers in, in you know, in Los Angeles, of course. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, Christopher Isherwood was, in, in addition to all those German heavyweights, you know, who, who, who were all living near each other in a way that seems kind of, kind of incredible, really, when I first learned that Thomas Mann, Schoenberg and Adorno and Horkheimer were all, were all sort of, you know, living on each other's doorstep. Um, in addition, there's, yeah, there's sort of British writers, you know, Huck, um, not Huxley, what's his name, Christopher Isherwood was living just down the, the road from us in, in mm-hmm. Santa Monica. But in a way, this is um, a, a perfect sort of lead into the next question, really, about the title, because although you borrow from Lawrence and he talks about New Mexico being the greatest experience from the outside world that he had had ever had. Finally, of course, the, the book is, is about the interior space, isn't oh, yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's an obvious mm. thing point to make. But but your your riffs with writers, your dialogue with with um, other culture, and, and the the lineage you've joined um, is made in the head, isn't it? And that's the point. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's kind of a, it's a crucial threshold between your interior life and ongoing experience and this this other other thing, this this true elsewhere that we call the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and at the at the same time, of course, that thing that's going on in your head is changed by by w- what you are. It would be there would be no point. Well, there would be a point, but uh, ideally, you know, I'm not just there in California because the weather's better. You know, I 
I would feel and yeah, I would hope it's changing me in some in, in some in, in yeah in some in some in some good way. Good, goodness knows, so that you know the effect writing wise will hopefully be a one will have sort of experiences that one wouldn't have here. Uh, two, for me, crucially, I mean the blinkers will be off because um, I mean because of you know when you you know, you know I'm. That those of you who live in London, I'm sure many of you, you've got, as you're going around the city, you've got just one idea in your mind, which is to get to where you want to go without let or hindrance, to get to get there as quickly as possible. And it's all a question of just, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas to be in a new place, I feel the blinkers are off somewhat because it's, it's new to me. But also, yeah, that one is going to become a, a different kind of writer, you know, um, in uh, the way that the, the place is impacting you in that way is very difficult to to uh, to to, uh, to assess, isn't mm. it? Absolutely. I mean, most of us, I'm sure, have had you know various thoughts on the beach about you know travel and place and all those sort of things. But what you do so brilliantly, of course, is you you push through the first, the second, the third wave of of let's call it insight at the beginning and and actually get to the real point, which is always the twist, the kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, which is twist. a joke, which is quite often a joke. Very possibly, but also <laughs> also you know incredibly rewarding so there's constant uh surprising dialogues between time and space and absence and presence and mm-hmm. and uh you know the idea onwards and behind and underneath all of this is this kind of sense of resisting decay and the sands of time and so on which come in in a kind of ozymandian way throughout but this all culminates in a very personal way a very you know profound way and actually first published in the london review of books of course oh, yeah, with your yeah. stroke and that, in a way, is the kind of is the reason for all the previous encounters. It seems to me, it's the idea that you know, with faced with a threat, one looks and, and enjoys and delights in the wonders of the world. Yeah, um, the, the the stroke piece was the, the natural uh, uh, piece to end. I mean, and the, I won't say much about this, but the extraordinary thing for me was that it just happened so soon after we arrived in in California. So that kind of um, <coughs> Yeah, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, the question that several people have asked is, you know, oh, there's a real sense of time passing in this book, and is that because of the stroke? And the answer is no, not really, because although for a little while I was conscious of that this thing could happen again, um, in no time at all, I just continued being, you know, I wasn't going around expecting anything bad to, to, to ha- happen again. I think it's much more the, the, I mean, that sense of time passing is just that, it's just so remarkable how time starts speeding up. My friend was quoting the great Martin Amos line about that. What was it? The bullet, the bullet train of the fifties, of one's fifties. Yeah, you know, when time really starts hurtling along. Well, I have no idea what time it is actually. Um, it's uh, almost exactly the time when we should open it out. Um, but before we do, I'd just like to um, ask you about images in the book because there's a kind of uh what oh. starts the book uh, or at least the uh, the canongate edition with a uh, uh obviously there's the, the the kind of frontispiece image but then one gets into the book and there are these these black and white images on the same paper as the as the text and one starts to think a little bit of wg sabald and dialogues there particularly the first image which i'll come to later on um and then one's surprised by the center of the book where color plates echo and repeat four of the images from the text yeah now i wonder if you could talk a bit, a bit about that because that's quite a surprising device oh not a device at all it's just that um 
you know, the pictures are so beautiful. Like that, that picture by, you know, the great Luigi Geary. I mean, that's just nothing in black and white. No. So uh, I wanted it to be in situ in black and white. So it, it's there on the, you know, the less good paper. But, you know, can't, you know, publishers to their great credit said we could afford to have, you know, the, the pictures that had to be in color. Yeah, which are amazing. In color. So, I mean, that was, that, that's all that's going on there. What is interesting in my opinion, though, and this is one of the <coughs> structural things. So there's a bit in... The, the second story, which is in Beijing in Forbid, uh, Forbidden City, where um, there's, a, there's a kind of romance developing and the narrator is photographed. The, the narrator and, and this woman, they're photographed. Somebody takes a picture of them. And as the picture's being taken, she drops a bag or something, so dips behind his um, chair and so disappears. And anyway, that's just a little mm. sort of not particularly dramatic moment. But then the book is structurally bookended i don't know if you can see this by these two pictures that i saw in luxor of this uh, of this pair of statues and the one on the left it's it's just you can see that half her body has been sheared away by time so there they are sitting there rather primly but then the if you moved i found just a few feet to one side then you would uh, get this sense that oh wow she's just moved she's just dipped behind his his back and i just love this idea that this this piece of stone that has been around for, God, I'm not very good about, you know, ancient Egypt, it was a long time ago anyway, it was really back in the olden days, that it was kind of, it was kind of alive really. And so I really felt this was, this was the thing that absolutely bookended, uh, that sort of, uh, yeah, bookended the book, if I can put it like that. Partly because so often what's going on is there's some kind of fleeting, transient human interaction that's taking place um, uh, between people and these big, you know, uh, sites which are going to be around for an awful long time. But the crucial thing is that the sites are not just some sort of passive uh, backdrop in front of which things are enacted. These places have their own kind of agency as well anyway so i thought that was the these two pictures taken by me rather rather cleverly i thought uh really really summed that up, up nicely um ideally they'd have been in color as well but it it, it wasn't essential that, that they were fantastic thank you very much jeff well um now's the moment uh, in time and space to uh, respond to what jeff said of course to the book if you've already encountered it to the uh, book of the week uh, uh, broadcast if you've encountered those or anything else that Jeff has done and said in his lifetime. Thank you very much, <laughs> um, gentlemen there. Uh, hi, it's not actually regarding the book, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on our post-Brexit. How, what, what should we do? What do we do? Oh, right, OK. Uh, well, I, don't, I think I, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a good question, but I, there's no point in me trying to answer it because I've got nothing more to say than anyone else in the room except it was just this you know except uh, lament and despair and what I was struck by was just how sort of personally I took it really I don't think I've ever you know of course I've lived through Thatcher being elected elected and all this kind of stuff but this was this was upsetting at a personal level that really really su- surprised me actually and um, yeah in terms of how we're gonna uh, how we're gonna get out of this I mean I uh, actually, what 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 struck me is this thing you know in films or sometimes in relationships even you know somebody does something bad and then what they say is well now you've really gone and done it and it just had that quality to it didn't it now we've really gone and done it you know 
and how we're going to get how we're going to undo it i don't know because i guess i've never felt so much just the irreversible power of history because with an election you think okay in four years we can turn it round, but oh my god this is just the the irreversibleness of it and i think that's why so many people 48 uh, if we could have rerun it 48 hours later i'm sure the result would have if people could then have given expression to their pissed offness then you say okay You've had you've had your grumble. Now let's vote on whether we want to remain in Europe. Everyone would have it would have the result would have been hugely different. Anyway, let's move on because I'm not the best person to ask about <laughs> this stuff. Thank you. Any any more thoughts about um, the state of the nation and the current <laughs> affairs? Thank yeah. you. Um, I was just going to ask because it seems to me that your writing and the kind of slippage between fiction and nonfiction and storytelling and essays that you're talking about is something that feels like it's common to you and sort of an, uh, other writers who are writing, I'm thinking of people like Tiju Cole or Sebald, obviously yeah. not writing anymore, but, um, or Alexander Heeman. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on sort of why that, why, at least to me, that seems like a more and more popular thing in the sand is sort of overcoming the road more yeah. and more for people. And I'm wondering, e- either in your writing, I know you're personally interested in it, or whether you have thoughts on other people and why you think it's so popular. Yeah, that's that's right. So, it, um, yeah, uh, it's certainly true. There's a lot of it uh, about now. It's a real sort of growth area. And uh, I don't know why it's happening now. Uh, I can only sort of put it personally, really, that I was conscious of a, as a reader that I was deriving less and less pleasure, really, from that straight sort of, you know, two-lane blacktop kind of, kind of narrative. Um, and there's a, a nerve, yeah, there's a real sort of zeitgeisty feel to it. And somewhat chippily, the only thing I would say is, you know, I so... Uh, when people say I've been influenced by Zabald, you know, <coughs> I just really have to point out I was doing it before any of his books were uh, <laughs> uh, appeared in English. Even if you look at the missing of the psalm, you know, I was even doing the crappy black and white pictures. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, um, but yeah, I don't know. Apart from that, uh, other people sharing a similar sort of. Imp- patience with uh, uh, the straight down, you know, the, the, the sort of fiction thing. I, I, I don't know why it's why it's happening now, but it certainly it certainly is. And weirdly, I've been a beneficiary of that of being part of a group thing in a way that I wasn't when I was just this uh, you know loser doing it for what for whatever reason back in the whenever <laughs> in the yeah. olden days again. Yeah. It's good to be part of a cultural phenomenon, a group phenomenon, you know. Yeah, those are my two penny worth on that. <coughs> I mean, do you feel part of, a, a, this, of this community? I mean, obviously you're friends with many of the writers that, that, that have been named and, and others, of course. And, and, you know, I'm sure you might exchange drafts of work in progress and oh, so I on. Oh, I never do that. Never do that? No. No? It's, uh, no. I mean, partly because it's when I asked my friend Jonathan Leatham if he would be the sort of, if he would be you at this gig at... at uh, in LA, he said, um, "Oh yeah, I, I will." And uh, at the same time, I do it. I'll change my name to Thankless Task. <laughs> so uh, I feel I don't want to impose that Thankless Task on anyone. Uh, um, so uh, no, I don't do that. But it's um, you know, it, whenever there's a group of, if there's ever a group sort of cultural thing, then the one thing you can be sure is everybody within that grouping spends their time saying why they're not really part of it. Yeah. You know, back in the <laughs> we go way back to the angry young men phenomenon. You know, they were all saying, you know, even the angriest, youngest men of them all were denying <laughs> they were angry young men. You know. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Any more thoughts or questions? Yes. Um, how's your relationship these oh, days? How's my relationship? Oh, this is going to be interesting. Oh, that's a, oh, I, I can smell a rat here, or not a rat, a, a sort of a time, a, a sort of loaded question. Um, it's the same as it's always been. Uh, that is to, uh, are you are you specifically rest, uh, referencing that article, yeah. catastrophic Coltrane? Yeah, well, and nothing to say. Yeah, uh, it 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 don't get any easier on the ear for me, um, and. Uh, I think the interesting thing about late Coltrane, which to me, every time, it just seems so much of it just seems like an awful racket. And the thing is, it's not late Coltrane uh, in the sense that late Beethoven is, that it's where Beethoven arrived at. This was a sort of transitional phase, and everyone is sort of saying, you know, maybe he was going to, what was he going to, you know, what was going to lie beyond that? Because he died so incredibly young, where he's still working this stuff out. But yeah, it doesn't, I don't, I don't, I'm not able to get in that state of trance-like serenity that some people are while listening to all this uh, racket. I'm very much of the Elvin Jones uh, uh, persuasion. It sounds like a lot of noise to me, even though I can see that he had to leave uh, Elvin. Jo- he had to leave the quartet behind. But um, yeah, what what about you and late Coltrane? Yeah, I, I th- uh, yes. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I just can't. You just, I just can't. And very, very late. It's very, very And that's what inter is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, I like bits of the Japan concert. Yeah, but okay. Um, yeah, uh, it might. It might be a personal failing on my part, but I just can't. I've just not. It's just not done it for me. Yeah. Um, I like the garrison bass solos on the, the so, late So while this is carrying on, there's a breakout space downstairs. Um, Very good. No, it's an absolute pleasure to compare albums that I've never heard. Um, um, but it makes me want to listen to them now, which I guess is the, is the, is the, is the result. Yeah, anyway, let's, let's move on. Yeah, that was... Uh... To even later Coltrane. Um, thank you very much. And um, are there any other questions? Uh, or thoughts. Yes, that gentleman again. Let's stay away from Brexit, shall we? Yeah. Um. Uh, is it remembered, or do you have to then go through it again? It seems very real. Just wondering yeah. how it somehow comes about, especially Paris trance. Yeah, uh, in Paris trance, I think it's really quite contrived because there are those kind of little uh, essays in conversation about, you know, submarine films or POW films or whatever. Uh, and generally, I think it's probably quite representative mix of semi-remembered things that are then just improved. Um, and um, it would be, I don't, th- even in the most uh, essayistic or sort of apparently factual things, I don't think much of the, uh, it. Yeah, it's the, the, the original conversation tends to be only a very first draft of things, although. Some bits are sort of too good to be true. So, for example, in the, when we visited the Adorno house and we, we got speaking to the, the current tenant there, you know, I swear to you, her parting words to us really were, remind me, how do you spell Adorno again? <laughs> so that was unimprovable upon, you know. And I, I, if, I, if, I mean, I had my tape recorder going and that, so, yeah, I can prove that that was really, that was really said. Other times it's just uh, um, at the, the lightning field, 
because that was published first of all in the the New Yorker. So they had to get in touch with everyone uh, who I'd been at, at the Lightning Field with. So I called them all and said, "You might not remember you said X. That's because you didn't say it. But when the fact checker <laughs> calls, you can." claim that you said this thing that was way wittier than anything you ever said. And everyone was happy to go along with, with, with that. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, thank you there. There's a, there's a bit in the book where you quote uh, someone whose name I've forgotten uh, saying the opposite of funny isn't, isn't serious, the opposite of funny is not funny. Yeah. Um, and I wonder do you, do you feel there, there was a great it just the serious comic writer doesn't to me seem as in vogue as it used to be. People like Roth and Bello and Amos. And I, I, yeah. I mean, do you agree? Or, or that serious happen? comic writing is not as in vogue. Yeah. Uh, I wonder. I'm never sure about sort of what's in vogue or not. But uh, yeah, I think it was actually David Sedaris who who said that, if I if I remember rightly, and I believe it absolutely. And. Um, yeah, I don't know about comic writing. What I do notice it, uh, in American writing, and this is, you know, I was a beneficiary of really, you know, ripping off Thomas Bernhard. And Thomas Bernhard now is such a, I would say he's the sort of, one of the dominant kind of influences on uh, American fiction at the moment, particularly American comic fiction. So I noticed, you know, if you think of a really funny writer like Sam Lipside, you know, there's a real Bernhard th- thing there. Um, then think of somebody like, geez, Ben Lerner is screamingly funny, isn't he? And very, very, you know, very serious. Um, and then Paul Beattie, you know, uh, the author of that book, The Sellout. I mean, that is real piss your pants funny. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, um, I... Th- I, I've never found Philip Roth particularly funny, and I certainly never found Saul Bellow funny. So in a way, I, would, uh, I, I guess I'm rejecting the terms of the, the lament. I mean, Martin Amis is incredibly funny, of course. But, yeah, so I think there is pr- pr- lots of, f- f- uh, yeah, really very funny writing in America. And, jeez, but it's also, I, I mean, I really like, comic writing when it's entirely unexpected so for me the greatest bit of comedy you know and i've said it before you know i really you know for me comedy is exactly what the cohen brothers don't do because i just don't find them funny at all whereas if i'm reading you know that bit in the dexter finkel book uh the forever war you know that incredible bit when he's at this suicide after in, in a market in Baghdad after there's been a suicide bombing, so it's really dreadful and awful. You know, and then he comes across the head of the suicide bomber, and he says, "Wow, God, it was in surprisingly good condition considering everything it had been through." So that's kind of hilarious and awful. And then he says. But the really incredible thing is that the look on his face is one of surprise, which is extraordinary, given he was the only person there who knew what was to come. And it seems to me that's great comic writing because it's much more effective than having somebody like, um, you know, some BBC news reporter saying, you know, you know, giving the normal tear-jerking stuff, whereas that, the, the horror of it is enhanced at the same time that it's funny. So that's the kind of... You know, I really very much like that kind of thing where it's funny. You're maybe not even aware, you know, you're not even sure that you've got permission to to, to laugh. Yeah. So comic writing is alive and, and well, I think. 
Thank you very yeah. much. There. Thank you. Yes, here. Yeah. I didn't expect that you were taking your tape recorder with you. I don't typically, but on this occasion, uh, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to have it just as a uh, uh, partly because we were driving, <coughs> so I was just speaking into it. Yeah. Are you a continuous note taker then when you're travelling? Not typically, but if I'm going, the answer to the question was, am I a note taker? If I'm going somewhere on assignment, as it were, then I have to be because of my natural tendency to not notice stuff. So having the notebook is an incentive to, is a, it's a, an encouragement for me to note is. Because I'm intrigued, I think, in the way in which you're writing between the sort of calculated and the chance encounter. That it, I'm wondering how much, in a sense, you set out to create a, uh, you know, a very specific kind of journey, and then how much you were affected by things that along the way that you never thought you'd write about, but suddenly become hugely interesting. And I'm wondering how much, in fact, is calculated and how much you leave to chance. Uh, well, that's a, you've summed it up quite well, that I'm, I'm there looking for, th- hoping things will happen, um, and sometimes they don't. So, for example, I mean, I went to Sarajevo to give a talk on uh, I don't know, war and memory or something. And I was really thinking, oh, yeah, Sarajevo is there just, that is obviously just waiting for me. Something is going to come out. And it didn't. You know, I just didn't have any, nothing happened to me. I didn't have any, even a great responsiveness to the place, even where I stood at the place where Franz Joseph Ferdinand was assassinated. It just didn't happen. So there's a limit to the extent to which you can contrive things into happening but I'm very I think I'm pretty resp- I'm pretty responsive to to the potential for things happening and then you know even when I mean and then the the calculatedness of it all of this thing that you're describing the combination of the random and the calculated is then repeated again in the writing process of course when you things just come to you and then once you've got some kind of draft of course you can then uh, you know bring in all sorts of uh, uh, effects and so forth and revision mm. yeah. oh there's someone <coughs> whacking yes. waving oh yes yeah please They're very very <laughs> i'll describe him to you he's a good looking guy <laughs> <laughs> You talked about being drawn to places of, of myth. Are we getting them? Are you getting it? No, could you speak right? So you, you talked about being place, uh, drawn to places of myth, and I was just wondering if that's why you ended up in um, Los Angeles, which might be the, the ultimate example, really. Of a place of myth? A place yeah, of myth, Los or Angeles. Invention or... the, the question was about uh, me being drawn to places with mythic significance, so was that why I'm in Los Angeles? And... The answer, unfortunately, is no. Although you're you're right, my God, it's a, you know it's a very religious city in a way, with the, the actors as gods. You know, um, it's completely random that we've ended up there. It's just entirely due to to my wife's work. Um, what is really interesting about it, though, as the Adorno chapter I hope shows, is that this paradigmatic city without a past, where you know regularly things are just bulldozed after a very short time. There's this incredible kind of uh, uh, amount of history going on there. It's just not as um, as heritage sighted as as it, you know. It's not a, a blue. It's not like there's. It's not that like there's blue blue plaques everywhere. But my lord, there's a there's so much that is uh, you know that that has gone on there, uh, and it's it's discoverable. Although something then also it's not discoverable. So for ages I was trying to find out, because there's a bit in the book, 
about this thing that I find so moving, you know, that, you know, this nutcase, you know, Ornette Coleman takes his, you know, sits in on somebody's gig and plays a solo and it's so awful that you get sort of run out of the concert hall and then later on, Charlie Hayden, who was at that gig, tracks him down and then there's this beautiful thing of them all rehearsing this revolutionary music in Ornette Coleman's garage, you know, and I was asking lots of people, you know, where, you know, where, where was this? You know, where did this momentous coming together of this Christ-like figure and his first disciples, you know, where did it happen? And nobody could, nobody could tell me. Um, similarly, it was very difficult to work out where the Hillcrest Club was. You know, there's the Hillcrest Country Club, which is sort of a golf club, which isn't, certainly isn't where Ornette and that lot were playing. But uh, it's sort of, you know, I, I find that the unfind, the, un, the way that the locations of these important, really important cultural events are not, are not flagged and sometimes, in some ways, uh, are no longer existing is really quite, quite fascinating about, about Los Angeles. Um, and another place of great significance in the book, you know, that in a typical L.A. way, I can't remember what, what the original name was, but it's where, it's where Hayden went looking for 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 um for Ornette Coleman, he ended up meeting uh, I think Art Pepper, and now that's like a, a Taco Bell or something, you know. Uh, so I, I kind of it's frustrating, but I like that aspect of it. So there's these, if you like, there are these so, there's this there are these song lines or there's this dream time underlying the you know the the very uh, the famously transient architecture of LA. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, do please buy this book, buy all the other books, get the one for free that David mentioned. Have another drink. Thanks to everyone here at the LRB for making it possible. Thank you for coming. Please thank Jeff Dyer. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>